0: On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the stories of parents learning how to raise a child with a rare disease. Our co-hosts, Sanath Kamar-Ramesh and Brittany Ratke, parents of rare disease kiddos who have very different situations. Sanath's son Raghav has an ultra-rare disorder known as Setagadian-type spondial Metaphysial Dysplasia, or SSMD. Brittany's daughter Everly has been diagnosed with Set-D5 a mutation that carries with it the potential for a range of complications and even other diagnoses. My name is Kevin Fryer. After 30 years doing research and development at Pfizer, I started Salem Oaks to help patients and caregivers understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D. Our goal on Raising Rare is to help and lift up our listeners by sharing the unfolding stories of these two families. We also feature the stories of other rare disease families, clinicians, researchers, and industry leaders in the rare disease community. If you'd like to follow these parents' stories, please subscribe to Raising Rare on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to Raising Rare. Today's discussion is part of our Other End of the Tunnel series, where we talk to parents of children with rare diseases who have grown into adults. We are speaking with Julia Taravella, who has raised two grown sons who have a rare lysosomal storage disorder. We'll hear more about the condition in just a few minutes. And Julia has also been instrumental in driving the research and looking into the therapies for this condition. We also have great news for our team. Brittany's back. Efferly's had a tough few months, and that means Brittany really has too. We'll hear more about that and their summer journey in our season-closing episode in October. So, Julia, can you tell our listeners more about yourself and your sons?
1: Well, hello, everybody, and thank you so much for having me here. I have two grown-up sons. Um, their names are Daniel. Um, he is now 28 29 years old, just turned 29, Uh, big birthday, yes, Um, and Alexander, and Alexander is 23. Well, as of now, it's actually uh, surprisingly, the um, disease that they have is stabilized. So what we have on everyday basis is actually two happy six-year-olds, running around the house <laughs> and kind of um, always um, trying to figure out the new things, trying to um, play the games, um, trying to do a uh, lots of handcrafts, a uh, lots of board games, activities. Um, they also like to go to gym, um, help around as every single six year old trying to do is you can probably remember. Those ones, um, they they are really happy to do things like chores around the house. I never have to. We never got into teenage years where they start. I've heard that they start resisting helping you. So things like picking up clothes or um, doing laundry is actually exciting activities in our house.
0: So they're they're twenty three and twenty eight size wise and their six year olds in the way they approach the world, so what are their personalities like
1: they actually the surprising thing is, and um we always joke with the researchers um, that is um trying to develop a treatment uh for the disease um The personalities are actually really kind of bright and very happy personalities and very helpful. So what we are figuring out with the doctors that those personalities may be a side effect of the disease. (laughs) So just uh, for the researchers who are developing a treatment, parents always, and we are actually all of the parents, uh, like that, always telling researchers try to make sure that when the treatment is developed, this particular personality will stay. This particular trait will stay there.
0: Wow, that's a a good problem to have. Go ahead, Brittany.
1: I was just going to say the
2: exact same thing. What a what a positive thing to have, and I want to build a little bit on kind of your rare disease journey. So Daniel and Alexander have a rare disease. What is it called? And can you explain a little bit about how it's impacted you and your family?
1: So Daniel and Alexander have a lysis storage disorder. Um, it is called urea. I know it's the big word to say. Um, so in short, we will call AGU it is a lysosomal storage disorder. So lysosomes is uh, one of those vesicles in the body that contain enzyme that break down um, different um, type of products. So there is enzymes that break down uh, fats, they break down sugars or they break down proteins in those particular cases, um, the AGU enzyme um, that they are missing is actually breaking down glucoproteins. Glucoproteins is the glucose attached to proteins, and the examples of uh, those in our body is actually a lot of hormones that we have. So the body is producing it by itself um, to sustain the life or antibodies it's also glucoprotein so it's actually extremely necessary uh, product that the bodies produce it's being recycled in the lysosomes so uh, lack of the enzyme uh, prevent the recycling um, of those so the those byproducts accumulate in the lysosomes lysosomes are everywhere in the body in every single cell so how it affects it affects every single part of the body from internal organs to bones to uh, brain what affects the most is everything <laughs> every little bit of everything so um the first sign of the disease is actually speech development it is um speech development sits in the brain. So it's part of the neurological development. Um, Around two years old, um, the children that should start um, having um, so many uh, words in their language um, reserves, I guess, uh, they don't... um, they don't possess those words. They don't possess those vocabulary. And then when they start putting sentences together, it's not as good as a normal child. Um, that continues throughout of their life. And that's one of the reasons why by uh, three, four, five years old, all of the children with AGU is actually diagnosed with autism, A typical form of autism, because um, those Three, four, five year olds, they actually physically still look normal. So, and that's one of the reasons is um, doctors will just say it's developmental disorder and some form of autism. So, that's kind of their main uh, representation of the disease.
2: I know I mentioned this before we were on the podcast, but I'm fortunate enough to have a lot of research into. Um, similar diseases just along our journey um, as we were kind of on the spectrum of looking at some lysomal disorders with Everly. Is there any other impacts medically that you've seen? Like, I know you kind of noticed the speech initially. Medically, you know, from two to five, were there any other symptoms that you noticed or was it kind of just a typical childhood at that point?
1: Um, no, there is lots of there is lots of little things whenever um, the children are that little. But you know how uh, when the children are toddlers, yes, or pre kindergarten, uh, you really don't know when they develop. Uh, maybe they are taking their time. You know how how it's always doctors are saying that oh they're taking their time, they're taking their time and just wait another six months or wait another year. You know. And some kids, yes, they do pick up. Uh, but and that's what the struggle was with my oldest son. I remember um so the kids are like five and a half years apart. So with my oldest son, I remember it was speech first. And whenever the speech was a problem, it was um um they they put they put continuous tubes in the ears. And they said, Well, when we'll put the tubes in the ears, it's they will start speaking. Um, So like three months pass and we actually enroll him um, in a special school um, in New Orleans for children with hearing problems. And what uh, what, helped, one of the reasons why I enrolled him in that particular school is because there was a lot of specialists that specialized with people with low hearing, you know, so there was a speech therapy several hours a day. And they said, well, the doctor said, well, a couple more months and he will fluently speak. And like three months pass and then six months pass and nine months pass and he was still not speaking properly. Uh, But then it's also continuous. um, So because AGU affects Every single body part, and you know what's our biggest body part in the body? It's actually immune system. So it affects immune system. So those kids, um, usually toddlers and um, preschoolers, they now I know that they sick maybe like three to five times a year on average. Those kids are sick twenty times a year. So I would continuously go to the doctor with those. Low kind of long progressing diseases <laughs> continuously, so they would continue and then um, it's also start affecting bones. So when the kids by three or four, or five years old start running fast, um, so though you kids would uh, trip and fall because, the bone structure in the hips will not form properly. They kind of um, walk, but look kind of clumsy, and it will show in when the time they start running. So interesting. Whenever I start looking into these diseases and talking to lots of parents, almost every single parent have their child at. Three or four actually at five or six, they have they still have scraped knees because they' still falling down. and they have those photographs of little children with scraped knees. <laughs> but all of those, Brittany, like what you're saying, you know, it's doctors usually don't pay attention to that because it's normal part of the child development. You' just getting it a lot more, you know.
2: Yes, and I think that's such a common ground we've kind of find in the rare disease world is this journey to diagnosis and and how frustrating it can be that you truly feel like you're missing something as a parent and you see things on a day-to-day basis, yet you're still not getting the answers. Can you kind of go over how you got to a correct diagnosis and how that journey was for you?
1: Well, it's... (laughs) <laughs> For us, it was extremely hard. Um, I mean, take it that um, my kids are older, so we were still living in, um, you know, early 2000s. By the time my second son was born and he was one years old, I started noticing exactly the same issues with with my oldest. And at that time, I almost start freaking out. It's like the stuff is repeating itself. And... And and I cannot figure out what's going on. <laughs> and I was thinking that, okay, oldest one is more developed. So um, if I will bring him to a lot more different doctors, maybe they can figure it out. Uh, so my poor Daniel, I think he was subject from the time he was six. And we actually got final diagnosis when he was 18. So for 12 years he was subject to so many crazy tests <laughs> um, anything starting i remember the first the first actually major issue that i knew that it was not mm, it it was not kind of regular something it was it was not just regular development issues it was we went to auditory um speech and auditory um specialist and they did a day long testing and they um they said that he has moderate to severe auditory processing um so that's kind of raised big flags but then I would still would go to medical doctors probably um about once a year once two year and a half And they will come up with some kind of diagnosis first. And then for another year and year and a half, I will try to figure out how to fix that or work on that particular diagnosis. And then in a year, in a year and a half, I'll figure out that it doesn't work. I will go to another round of specialists. (laughs) So anybody from GI, I mean, of course, it's, it's, it's regular pediatrician and physician. So anybody from their... Um, GI, um, heart doctor, um, because morphine, for example, syndrome was one of the diagnoses. Mm-hmm. The panel, um, tests, uh, was run on my kids, but at that time it was just panel tests, um, genetic panel tests. I think uh, the doctors run, um, um, don't remember the disease now, but it's X-link because it's two boys. Um, So the doctors was um, kind of um, focused on if it is X-link, some kind of developmental disorder. Um, I think they run the similar tests um, for X-link disorders probably three or four times. Um, neurologist. Of course, we were going into all types of neurologists, probably every few years. Anything from trying to figure out if they have seizures, um, or anything else to that extent. Um, and nothing worked. I mean, uh, we did muscle biopsies, we did blood tests, urine tests, of course, um, whole body X rays, multiple MRI, CAT scans. scans And with the kids, as you probably know, you have to put them under full anesthesia for that. (laughs) Um, And, yeah. um, So by probably when Daniel was like 14, um, our geneticist, and it was not only in New Orleans that I, I did that. I actually brought them all over the United States. I brought them to Houston, to Dallas, In Florida, um, I think we went to Salt Lake City, in New York, all kinds of places. (laughs) But I guess I never was able to hit the doctors that actually knew this particular rare disease, which is very, very um, kind of very scary. Um, By the time Daniel was 14 years old, our geneticist, who was very willing, you know, to help and went out of the way, um to do all kinds of tests. He actually tests because glucosamine urea sounds like urine. And it's true. It's actually very simple tests that um, test the disease by um, just the sample P-test. We did that test uh, when Daniel was 14. And it actually came back false um, negative. But the note is but the sample is contaminated, and I remember talking to the um, to the doctor, to the geneticist. I said that um, look, it's it the sample cannot be contaminated. I am a chemist by background. I know how to take samples. That's my job. That's like my number one skills is to take samples to pour from one bottle to another bottle, you know, from one container to another container to clean up the specimens and stuff like that. And his answer actually shocked me. He said, you really don't want your child to have a lysosomal storage disorder because there is no treatment. The interesting part is when I find the final diagnosis, I actually call the lab. It's commercial lab. It's commercial lab, but it's adjunct to a university. And I ask them to... Um, so first I ask whether they do the testing. It's yes, they do. The interesting part is they do. they did those testing, let's say once in five or seven years. So the standard sample that they have to run against it was sitting on their shelf for years and years, so it's not that the sample is con- was contaminated is it's their standard sample that they have to um, kind of run against it was not i guess properly was not proper at that time you know maybe changed or something like that so
2: I do want to commend you just on hearing. From you know, mother to mother, um, this diagnostic journey was not short by any means. And I think something you know, that we can all align with is whether it's two months or 10 years, it's really hard some days to keep going. and you did everything. And hearing that you called the lab after and all of these steps that you continued to do, until you could find an answer are truly amazing. I think you're a really positive advocate, and I love to see that. So I wanted to first tell you that from mother to mother. Um, and then I'm also curious, are there any steps now looking back at this journey that you could see, you know, physicians kind of shortening the diagnostic journey? for those that have
1: the lysomal disorders? So it ended up, this this particular, um, this particular um, doctor said that, look, I just don't know what to do anymore. Uh, we tested everything that we tested. Our uh, regular physician kind of started telling me that, look, there came time that we've been working on that for years. There came time that you really need to accept that, you will not find diagnosis. So the only thing I was able to, I was, I kind of um, could do is like, okay, I cannot rely on the medical doctors anymore. I need to, um, I, I need to um, start figuring out the technology of the, um, if it is genetic disease, that seems like my both kids have, I need to figure out what to do. At that time, the only only time I was um, able to get any kind of genetic diagnosis, the surprising part, it was 23andMe. So uh, we did um, the test. The whole family did the test of 23andMe. Remember downloading? um, You can have all those, your general reports with the 23andMe. But um, the interesting part is there is a... um, there is an option to download raw, raw data. I downloaded raw data uh, for that. Uh, and I remember running for about a year uh, and talking to everybody, trying to help me figure it out, what it is. And at the same time, that everybody's like, the doctor specifically was like, you, you crazy. <laughs> Get away from me with all of those gigabytes of data. <laughs> um, so I went to university um two classes in genetics and actually end up i um had a conversation with very interesting person uh, by by uh, his profession is bioinformatics so it's the people who actually process their um genetic data who kind of understand he kind of pointed me in the right direction so I was able, actually, after the classes uh, at university and with his help, I um, wrote a program that processed my my and my husband's data and my kids' data. And as a result, I was actually able to figure out what the gene is not working. And once we'll figure it took four years from the time um, the doctors gave up to the time um, I went back to the doctors and said, I need uh, this particular genetic condition tested. I'm really happy there is a lot of um, those tools I exist now. Um, Ten years down the road is, I would say that anybody who kind of struggling with diagnosis to do um, something like whole exon sequencing or whole genome sequencing to that extent. Um, There is new genes uh, discovered, new genes meaning the mutations in the genes that are not known, discovered almost um, on a monthly basis. So who knows if it is not something, um, if it is not something um, already known, maybe there is something that um, scientists can discover.
2: That gives me a lot of hope because um, I've mentioned previously on the show, but there's only about 200 to 250 cases currently of set D5. So one of the things that our genetics team often says is exactly what you just said. There's a lot of hope that just because right now we may not be able to link a lot of the symptoms that she's kind of going through, but in the future, you know, five to 10 years from now, there may be something out there. And one of the greatest things about the care at Mayo is there's always DNA samples on file. I hate to say on file, but um, I actually find that to be incredible. So I love hearing kind of that hope and that you just never know what the genes will look like in a few years.
1: Whenever we finally got the final diagnosis, that was um, June 2012. So literally 11 years. The first, it's anybody who gets the diagnosis, it's a shock. Uh, for me, that shock was a few months before that. Um, three months before that when I actually figured it out from um, from genetic sequencing, what's the test. So I... I remember when I first saw that, um, I think I was crying nonstop for about five days, literally. (laughs) I was coming to work and was walking around the office and was crying. I, I, I couldn't stop crying because I realized what the disease my kids have. By the time doctors confirmed the diagnosis, I already was prepared for that because I knew that about three months before that. My husband was still in denial as also our relatives, my parents were still in denial on that. So that was their first shock also. It's very difficult. It's, I mean, the diagnosis and um, the diagnosis of the disease, what it is, it's um, the life expectancy is 25 to 35 years. Um, That was in the literature and 25 is actually for boys and 35 for girls. Um, My oldest son at that time is 18 years old. So he only have kind of short life expectancy. Actually, I was prepared by that time to, by the time of the final diagnosis from the doctors in June to jump into action because I got over Already that initial shock. It took. It's it's usually take when I, once you get the diagnosis. I would say almost everybody that I've seen usually takes several months to get over it. At least that's the minimum. I mean, sometimes some people take longer, but like two, three months that's normal. I don't know what what was it for you, nice it was, it, was, <laughs> it was probably also it, a few it, months. There
3: was a short and a long. The long was it took years for us to get to the acceptance phase. The shot was we were acting like the next week. <laughs> um, it's so it was, it's a, yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird mix.
1: Exactly. So, in um, the interesting part that in, um, and what, what came with that diagnosis from the doctor, I'm sorry, but there is nothing we can do anymore. Just make happy memories. But the next months after that, it was actually International Glucoproteinosis Conference, which happens once in several years. But it's actually, we were lucky that it was happening next month. So we went uh, to that conference. What I've seen on the conference is there was work was going on for the other diseases that's part of that glucoproteinosis group. But there was nobody doing anything for AGU. So it just gives me hope that I can probably organize somebody. Nobody doing, that means that there is a field open. <laughs> you can organize that. Uh, in August, I um, so during all of this time, like like you said that, you kind of go into overdrive and start trying to figure it out. So what I did is actually I wrote probably to every single researcher that ever did that ever did a AGU research, and no research was going on in this particular time at all. Um, but there was lots of research was done in nineties and maybe early two thousands, eighties, nineties, and early two thousand. I pulled out every single article and wrote to every single researcher that I could find globally. Um, my kids have AGU. What have you researched? Uh, what can you help? Where you can point me? Um, in August, I flew to Germany uh, where the person that actually developed the her PhD was like, Fifteen years prior to that, her PhD was to, um, she um, discovered the 3D structure of AGU enzyme. So I flew to Germany and we had a meeting uh, with few people over there actually to try to brainstorm what type of treatment um, are available. And um, she took on... there, um, she said that she can get back, although she didn't do anything for ten plus years. But she can back, can get back into the research because it's was dear to her. It was her PhD. <laughs> um, she pulled, um, she gathered together all of the kind of basic science, um, not knowledge, but basic science. Um, um, like you probably, it probably is known to you. Like She got, she get back together the essays that you can do for the proteins. You know, that's very important part that basic science testing abilities to get back, to get back into that gear, you know, of uh, basic science research. So she contacted the people who was last doing the research. He pulled out the antibodies And then she developed the antibodies. So she developed the essays because she had that ability, although she didn't. But she was willing to do that. And she had the knowledge of doing that. So I already had somebody, you know, on my side helping me with something that I had no clue what to do. Um, So she kind of almost started with all of that right away. So which was good. Um, one of the so then we also during the meeting we brainstormed what are options For me is the, so my background is kind of early project development. So um, one of the um, one of the things that we are also uh, looking for early project development. we don't know how project will go. so never put all your eggs in one basket it's spilled over to your investment portfolio, but it's it's the same idea. So what my goal was in brainstorming the projects, the type of projects that we would do is what is the probability of that project I um, going to succeed, number one. And number two is how much it will cost. So um, for genetic disorders it's actually not too many options in the developing genetic disorders. You can either correct the gene, you can either correct um, RNA, or you can correct the protein that is uh, producing from the RNA. So that's kind of the options. (laughs) Um, Everything else is after that is just um, fixing the symptoms. So um, what we were talking about and what we decided to do is actually um, gene therapy on one side, but it is long process and extremely expensive, although it will cure everybody who has that problem gene. But also, um, so the other options was um, enzyme replacement therapy. But that particular enzyme, that AGU enzyme, it's very tricky and very difficult to make. So the other option that we looked at is Chaperone therapy um, slash small molecule therapy. That's the other word for that. So what it does, it screens for the drugs that is pretty small molecule, as it says, and it either goes into the uh, process of uh, between RNA and protein and it plugs into the mutation and the read-through of the protein is normal, or it's actually when the protein is folding into the enzyme, it sits um, somewhere in the void and helps proper folding but in both cases it's actually produced functioning enzyme <laughs> um this particular researcher that we met in germany she actually said that she will start working on the chaperone therapy um that would be a good idea so she gathered all of the tools for the basic science um like we talked about the essays and so on. Um, And uh, we start um, doing the screening of the drugs, like what lots of people done screening of the drugs. I actually, probably in 2014, in some summer fall 2014, I actually set up uh, the screening panels in uh, Harvard. You know, Harvard has a huge amount of screening panels for drugs. Although one of the things that when we talked with the researcher, one of my goals was is, um, so let's, let's talk back, screening of the drugs. When you have screening of the drugs, one of the problems is the drug is produced uh, by some kind of pharmaceutical company. You need to have a prescription for that from the doctor for off-label um, usage or you need, um, and, and you actually need um, some kind of permission from the pharmaceutical company to use that drug. So one of the um, goals for, um, for me in the very beginning for those um, small molecule drug screening studies was actually scry- screen a vast majority of natural substances. Because they are off the shelf, they don't require prescription, and most of them already have safety studies performed on that because they are non prescriptive. That means that there is a, a lot of safety um, data there. And that's what's happened. It's right before we were um, actually um, set to go and do all of their screening panels in harvard um the researcher called and she said that she got a hit um, on the natural substance it is um the the work is published so it's actually what my kids are taking is actually glycine it's one of the amino acids that can be purchased off the shelf um, and uh, so usually um Normal people like us, um, glycine is taken maybe in the amount of 0.1 gram, so 100 milligrams. My kids are taking it on the amount of like 10 grams per day. It's taken as a drug, but it's also is um, taken as a drug actually for schizophrenic disorder. So there is a huge, vast amount of um, safety data. So we were able, I went back to the doctor in New Orleans. I show her all of the results, show all of the data. And we were able to start um, giving the kids um, the drug, small molecule therapy for them, probably in, uh, I think, November or December 2014, which is almost nine years. So what that happened, what, what that did with my kids is my son is 29. He should be dead by now he never regressed yet he's still talking walking doing everything that's what he was doing 10 years before
3: that's so powerful i really wish uh you know your sons had gotten the treatment when they were like one month old uh, so hopefully they might have they might have had a more normal development do you know if other kids in the in the disease community take this drug now
1: so it is permutation. Nobody has the mutation like my kids have. We didn't find those, those yet. Uh, but uh, the researcher actually um, found several other small molecule therapies for other mutations. Um, there is a big community of the same type of mutation in Finland. Um, and they actually, because it's a big community, they're actually doing clinical trial of another Um, small molecule, also off-the-shelf small molecule. And uh, actually, the results are amazing. And they're giving it to the children that are like five-year-olds. So, like, the kids are amazing. I don't know if you've seen um, one of the videos that I posted on LinkedIn I mean, um, the kids are developing great and it's actually shows, uh, it's full blown, full full kind of set up clinical trial where they um, do the blood work and they do MRIs. They actually, on MRIs, they show the brain improvements due That's to the small molecule.
3: That's really impressive. Uh, I'm so yeah. excited drug repurposing has, uh, you know a role to play uh, a significant role to play in diseases like this this is this is how we are going to all get to treatments uh,
1: well it it is like the gene therapy probably will save you you know but how long will it take to to develop gene therapies how many kids died while waiting for gene therapy to uh get developed i mean it is gene therapy to me is uh, probably on average is like six, seven years Yeah. <laughs> to clinical trial. And I mean, you money. can do it in three years, but somebody else doing it 10 years like us, you know, and it's not, um, and nobody, um, I mean, you cannot do it. Uh, the vast majority of the um, cases will not be able to do it in two, three years. Yeah.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's
1: usually five, six, seven years.
3: Uh, well, I mean, you, you've had an incredible journey, uh, and I know you have a long ways to go from here. Uh, but are there any lessons you've learned that you would like to share with um, other families and parents?
1: I would say the main lesson learned that I would um, suggest is um, never give up. <laughs> um, when I was studying math in school, um, our math teacher was wonderful. Uh, but she taught us a very um, simple lesson. She was always saying, if you don't know what to do, do something. Because just sitting there and waiting will never bring you anything. If you will do something, you will make mistakes. You always will make mistakes. But those mistakes will lead you to discoveries, discoveries that nobody got you there. Um, um, try to contact as many people as you can, trying to ask help for as many people as you can. I think now 10 years down the road um, of um, trying to develop treatment for my kids, I think one of the uh, main lessons learned for me is try to take um, time for yourself. It's so extremely important because for the first probably six years, I was going on six, seven years, I was going on like crazy. And now I can feel the kind of, those um, the involvement of all of those years, and um, it's kind of pulling on me. <laughs> Although we're all getting older too.
0: <laughs> so I want to thank you so much, Julia. I want to know where can people go to find out more about your research you're doing, and and help you help. Where can they go to support you and perhaps donate some funds?
1: Oh, thank you. Um, We have a website. Um, The website name is raretrade.com. And we also post the updates. We have a Facebook where we post updates. Um, Rare Trade, uh, Hope Fund, also have a LinkedIn page. Um, So that's where uh, kind of all of the activities happening. We also have a GoFundMe page.
3: Um
0: Yeah, you've got a great page that that tells everybody about Alexander and Daniel and this the journey you've been on um and it it's got a place where it's really easy to to throw a few bucks down to help you uh, advance the gene gene therapy that you're working on. Yeah. So, once again, thank you very much. This has been a fantastic uh discussion and I think we're all sitting here a little stunned by how much you've done and that perseverance and how you took that math teacher's uh, advice to heart and and applied it to your life. It's been wonderful.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. It was nice uh, being all here and talking to you.
0: Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4.org on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. The SET D5 community is currently getting organized. We will let you know where you can donate soon. You can continue to follow Raghav and Everly stories next time on Raising Rare.